All right. Welcome to episode 76 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Andreas Elpidoru. He's an academic philosopher and writer. He's currently an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Louisville. He specializes in the philosophical study of the mind and has published extensively on the nature of emotions, especially boredom, consciousness, and cognition. He's best known for his work on the function and value of boredom. His new book is called Propelled, How Boredom, Frustration, and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life. Welcome, Andres. Hi, Alan. Hi, Leon. Thanks so much for having me on your show. And then so what was so cool, and we were just talking about this before we began, was that a lot of what Andreas talks about and obviously what his books and his other work deal with, a lot of these things or a lot of these topics that Alan and I talk about with, you know, between ourselves, with our guests. And so a lot of what your book is about is pretty much it's a reframe. It's sort of a cognitive reframe of these topics that people have pretty, let's say, black and white kind of conceptions of. So as we begin, I mean, so your book, right? So we're talking about boredom, anticipation, frustrations. So as we begin the conversation, can you first tell us how people normally how people normally view those kind of um, I guess emotions for lack of a better word. Yeah, thanks so much for that. And I think you're absolutely right saying that um, this is especially the case for both boredom and frustration. I think there was a lot of black and white, mostly black, um, mm-hmm. and that is mostly a negative approach to those two emotions. Um, in recent years, so what drove me part of this project? What drove part of this project and my research as well was this negative take on boredom. Um, and so I'm trained as a philosopher and I was doing a lot of readings in the history of philosophy about boredom. And if you were to summarize it, the summary is that boredom is bad, avoid it. Um, and I wasn't quite sure that was right. And so that set me off this path trying to investigate whether there's something else to boredom, something more positive perhaps. And then I kind of stuck with that mind frame um, framework Um, or mindset of trying to investigate what other emotional states maybe we have misunderstood or better underestimated. And frustration was the other one, the other big one. And I think recently there's been an approach to try to show that boredom has some value, but I couldn't find many people arguing for the value of frustration. So that was a harder task, I suppose, that I took up uh, with frustration. And so those, that kind of began the ideas in the book and um, trying to investigate if there's more than meets the eye in those kinds of emotions and um, states or affective states. And what is the value that you found in boredom and frustration? Yeah, good. Um, I, I might have to take them separately. There, there's a joint value, and I talk a little bit about this in the book at the end. And I think what they do well, those kinds of states, and I include anticipation here as well, is that they're able to drive us forward in our lives. They're able to motivate us in ways that I think are quite useful. Um, and that's the link to this idea of perhaps we can even use them to um, take us to a better life or just cultivate better habits or find more meaning in our lives. So that's the big picture that this drive for motion um, that all states provide. Um, I can just say a few things about boredom and then we can. Um, yeah, see actually, that, yeah. Let's, let's do that. Let's go from one by one and let's kind of like tackle the, co- the topics like one by one each by each, I guess. So let's start with boredom. Yeah, good. And boredom is something that I've been thinking for a while now. And um, as I said, I was motivated by that kind of negative take. And I started thinking about well, could there be more? And one of the motivations was, or theoretical motivation, was the, just the plain 
basic observation that like I get bored a lot and a lot of people do, especially different stages in our lives or earlier stages in our lives, then why do we have this emotion if it is so prevalent? Um, and I started thinking about what it could do or what it could offer for us. So one of the main ideas that I find in boredom is to talk about the capacity to experience boredom. Um, and here I often like to make an analogy or a comparison better with pain. So pain is unpleasant, right? Nobody wants to be in pain, most of us of this, and we go to great lengths to avoid pain. But at the same time, we know from personal experiences, but also from um, um, cases in psychology and neuroscience, that if you cannot experience pain at all, you are in great danger because pain protects you from harmful stimuli, um, harms to your body and all that. So I think there's something there um, at an analogous function there to boredom. And so to get to that, it might be helpful to just say what boredom is or how people define boredom. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's important, it's basic, it's easy in, in some ways, but it's, the elements are important. So it's unpleasant. So we don't like to be in, the, in that state. It tells us in kind of metaphorical way that what we're doing right now is not what we wanna be doing. And at the same time, it involves a desire to do something else. Um, and often this desire is it's general or not specific enough, just do something else. Um, and so what I take boredom to be doing is to do two things. One of it is to just give us the affective information, emotional knowledge, say, oh, you're stuck in this situation. This is not for you. This is not engaging. Uh, but at the, same, at, the other, at the same time, it's like an itch that you have to scratch. You want to get out of it. Um, and in order to get out of it, it, it moves you to find something else. And so there's potential there in how you're going to find the something else, how you're going to alleviate this experience of boredom. Yeah. And do you think that for the, maybe not for the most part, but let's say, let's say it's an important facet of it. Do you find that a lot of times why people are so afraid of boredom is because when they're not sort of stimulated, whether it's, you know, through your cell phones, whether it's through, you know, not so much television anymore, but let's say, you know, Netflix or whatever, that they just don't really know what's important to them and they don't know what their values and goals should be. And they're kind of afraid to look at that. Yeah. So my big worry with boredom is not, is not the experience itself necessarily, is what we do with that experience. So if you are bored, let's say, I don't know, bored with your occupation or with your job, and that takes a large chunk of your days, weeks, years. Um, but if you don't stop to think about why you're bored, and if you, you know, you might be in a position to change jobs, you might not, but let's assume that there's something that you could do about that state of boredom. Um, I worry that you lose the signal that carries a lot of value for you. So you, we need to know if my job is, if our jobs are boring mm -hmm. and I shouldn't be able to distract myself all the time from that kind of boredom, because that's, that's a personal type of boredom. Um, something that is trying to tell us something, trying, trying to motivate us and perhaps help us in various ways. I'm not that concerned with the type of boredom that you might experience when you're waiting for the subway to come or the bus or in an airport. That's kind of unavoidable, right? I mean, what are you going to do about that? But I, I am more concerned about a lot of boredom during free time, boredom with relationships. Um, 
you know, and um, and I, I'm in, I, I have kids now, so I also I'm also worried about boredom with children because uh, you know you have to entertain them, and that's often that kind of entertainment is not your type of entertainment. So there is a battle there with your emotions and how to do that. So yeah, so I definitely agree with that um, um, astute observation about trying to find what this signal might be telling us and whether there's meaning or meaninglessness, um, meaningfulness or meaninglessness in various situations. And then, so I wonder when it comes to boredom, um, let's say if somebody, let's say if somebody had, uh, I don't know, maybe like, like a philosophical counselor or a therapist, like somebody sort of sit down with them and sort of, you know, try to guide them to figure out like, what is it that's important to you, right? Um, so like, obviously with COVID, you know, a lot of us have had pretty much a ton of free time to kind of sit back and think about what's valuable to us, what's important to us. So I think, I wonder if for you, if one of the remedies would be to have somebody sort of sit down with a person and sort of help them figure out like, why are you so afraid of boredom, right? Why is it that this thing is sort of something to run away from consistently and persistently and even sort of impulsively or compulsively? Why is it that like, let's say, why is it that you can't be or you don't feel like you can sit with the boredom? Why is it that it's so hard for you to really think about your life in a deep and meaningful way? So do you feel like first for somebody who is afraid of boredom, like maybe sort of that other that person sort of like a guide or whatnot, it doesn't again have to be a therapist, it could be a philosophical counselor, a teacher, a mentor, your friends, maybe. Do you feel like that would be important? Yeah, and I think, I mean, just to add to that point is I'm, I'm more, mostly worried about individuals who are alone battling this persistent boredom. Um, that's going to be a harder task to figure out what to do. Um, let me, uh, just to add to your comment, um, Adam Phillips, um, Adam, Phil, Adam Phillips has a psychoanalyst talks about boredom and developmental value of boredom. And one of the lines that he has is that he thinks that we should give, we should allow children to be bored because we're giving them time to figure out what to do with their time. Mm. And so there's a kind of a skill that might be, we might be able to cultivate. So I don't think kids can do it on their own. I think we can guide them towards cultivating their own interests, figuring out what to do with that free time. And that applies um, to adults as well. So what you are describing is a situation where I might not be able to figure out what I want to do. Or sometimes we just want somebody to prompt us to do other things, right? You're staying home. Maybe someone is telling you, let's go for a walk, right? Or let's start a hobby or let's get involved in something. Um, and all those are ways in trying to alleviate and fight boredom. And hopefully you can direct it in, in more productive ways. Now, there can be the counterproductive or the mal maladaptive ways of uh, Counting, um, excuse me, countering boredom, and that's that's part of the game, I suppose. We just need to figure out where we want to go with that emotional signal. Having someone else, I think, offers us an additional element of protection in how to figure out where to go with boredom. Yeah. And I want to kind of pose a question to actually to both of you. So this is something that I find like sort of clinically and just personally, and I wanted to know if you guys have experienced the same thing. So have you sort of guys have, have you met or kind of have known people that let's say they were, let's say chronically bored, right? And then when it kind of came down to sort of having conversations with them, you would ask like, hey, like, you know, the world is sort of full of these interesting things, right? Like I know like Alan would, let's say, like to read or watch podcasts, right? Like let's say Andreas, obviously you're a prolific writer, right? And a teacher, right? So were there certain like sort of potentials that people have to kind of actualize it? Let's say, you know, actualize, you know, their own kind of inner potentials, right? So I wonder if you guys find that the most, the people that you've known who are chronically bored also struggle with self-esteem. 
that for them, it's sort of like not only are they bored, right? Because they feel like, oh, well, you know, like this isn't interesting or, um, you know, like this isn't meaningful or whatnot. But it's also there's a sense of hopelessness there that even if I put myself out there and I try these things, what's the point? Because it's hopeless or I'm helpless anyway. I'm never going to be able to succeed. So I find that a lot of people who are chronically bored are afraid of their boredom. Like uh, they they don't view it as they don't frame it as a friend to them. They think it's their enemy. They need to find some kind of stimuli to sort of mm, quell the boredom, right? And they're constantly seeking stimuli just to cover that up and avoid the signals that the boredom is giving them, as Andreas is saying. And I mean, uh, could it be a self-esteem issue? Um, I think so. I think there are probably a lot of links um, to what could be causing their chronic boredom or their relationship to their boredom. Mm -hmm. But definitely there's there's some avoidance going on. And that's what I that's what I like about your book, Andreas, is that it's it's reframing boredom as something that's a useful tool. And hopefully more people will see see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so just to kind of follow up really quickly on what you're saying. Um, so do you find that like, let's say, I don't know, when you give people options, right? Like how you have options, again, going back podcasting, books, you know, kind of bettering yourself in some way. Do you feel like they constantly sort of resist it and they get a little defensive? It's like, ah, that's not for me. Well, see, that's opening a can of worms uh, because the thing is um, people will resist anything that's new. Like if, if, if if there's a, you're presenting them with something they don't usually do that's outside of their reality, there's always going to be that initial resistance. And depending on what kind of person you're presenting the information to, their willingness to try on a new habit is totally dependent on their own belief system and, and value system. So, I mean, you'd have to be presenting that to somebody who's willing to to try to take on new behaviors, even if it's uncomfortable or they're very resistant to it. Right. So for example, anyone who listens to our podcast, for example, or listening to this conversation, they're probably willing to try to take on new behaviors or to accept that maybe they should be sitting and listening to their boredom, for example, mm -hmm. to answer your question. Yeah. And Andres, what do you think? Is there any sort of link between boredom and self-esteem? I need to look at the literature um, and the research to answer that affirmatively. I probably, um, it's a complicated question uh, because the science isn't really settled on what counts as chronically bored or bored often. We really don't know what that idea is. So there are some conceptions of how to measure with questionnaires, for instance, that you give a questionnaire to individuals and they have to select certain answers. Um, what we do know is that if you're bored, chronically bored or bored often or all the time, that's a serious mental health concern. And one of the strongest correlations, and that touches upon your point, um, has to do with depression. Um, so it turns out um, case after case, when you perform those experiments, there's, and you give them a depression questionnaire or some measure to figure out whether they're depressed in some way, then there's a strong relationship between the two. Um, so there is a, a change in the way that individuals perhaps might even perceive the world. And so you're answering that, your question about choices. It's, if, if that correlation between depression is strong, you can imagine them not really seeing any value or personal value in the choices. And we might think, well, how can you not? 
because they all seem engaging or enticing in certain ways, but from their own personal perspective, that, that kind of value or attraction disappears. And I think it's really hard to get them to be motivated. Um, and so maybe that's why we need somebody else, a coach, a friend, um, you know, uh, a partner um, to help us and help everybody guide us out of this difficult moment. Right. And in your book, you talk about sort of this existential boredom and the difference between sort of being bored in the moment and obviously kind of this chronic sort of level of boredom where you're just bored with life in general. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your research has found in terms of that? Yeah, so th that touches upon the previous kind of questions that were or conversation. Um, I think it's really important to keep the two types of boredom separate. So there is the everyday um, um, it's a temporary experience of boredom that looks a lot like, a lot like an emotion. Um, and it depends often heavily on the situation. So I'm bored now, but I won't be bored in 10 minutes, right? I'm bored when I'm alone, for instance, but if someone shows up, I will not be bored. So part of my, my work is to show that that kind of boredom can turn out to be quite productive, functional, useful if we're able to use it in the right ways, if we know how to read the signals and we, if we know how to respond to it. That's, that's the one um, type of boredom. The other one, which again, we don't know exactly um, what is the theoretical basis, exactly what it is, um, how related to external conditions might be. We typically treat it as something, a personality trait, but as we know, there are gonna be interactions with the environment and our social conditions and all that. And, and that's a much more serious concern because it just turns, it's either this more or less permanent experience of boredom or uh, a recurrent, and then it just pops up all the time and things that previously motivated you, things that previously excited you, you can you no longer find excitement in that. And the problem with that kind of um, sustained or prolonged or frequent boredom is that um, often the ways out of that state of boredom are not they're maladaptive. Right? One way is to drink. Another way is to do engage in drug use you know, or some other behaviors that are exciting. Um, they, they get you out of that state. They pr provide you with a kind of a temporary relief from that um, experience of boredom, but they're not necessarily going to help you in the long term to recover from that if we want to use that language or just, just to, you know, maybe perhaps um, offer you a different way of seeing things or approaching ideas and um, situations. Yeah. What about uh, frustration? Uh, moving on to frustration, what would you say is the value of frustration? Yeah, um, it, it, there's two things again, and I think this is kind of what allowed me to bring together the different states. So there's, there's similarities between frustration and boredom. So one way of seeing this is to say, well, when I'm bored, I'm dissatisfied with what I'm doing right now and I want to do something else. I want to switch to an alternative situation, whatever that might be. When I'm frustrated, and this is perhaps important to just say what frustration is, it's again a negative experience when we're faced with an obstacle that blocks the completion of a goal. So I want to achieve something and then something comes my way and that just frustrates me. Um, and, and we know that the closer you are to the goal that you want to achieve, the more frustrated you, um, you become. And so what frustration does first and foremost, I think it energizes. So it energizes us. It motivates us. It gives us this additional fuel to say, you're close to conquering your goal. Keep doing it. Keep trying. Um, 
And the other thing that it does, and I think this is also equally important, is that just like boredom, it allows us to see where value, where personal value and meaning lies. So we're, we don't get frustrated by whatever we cannot accomplish. So one example might be, I cannot fly, right? Um, gravity might be an obstacle to that, but I'm not frustrated by the fact that I cannot fly. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be frustrated if I'm trying to express an idea and I just can't get it. For instance, I can't write it on paper. I cannot really um, communicate it. That will frustrate me because it's something that I place more value. It's closer to me. It's more meaningful, more personal. So I think what frustration does, it's, it allows us to see if something frustrates you, um, for better or worse, it's something that matters to you. And at the same time, you're motivated to try to accomplish that. So I think we, we typically don't like frustration and for good reasons, it doesn't feel good. And also signifies that what we wanna get out of the situation, we just can't, but we shouldn't give up on frustration. And from a theoretical standpoint, um, it seems quite important for what we do in our lives and for many of our accomplishments seem to be built on um, seem to be built on frustration on the experience of frustration. Yeah, and then also, I mean, talking about just like those, um, just boredom and frustration in general, um, just kind of like linking those two negative emotions together, right? Something that you speak about in the book, and I'm sure we talked about it before too. It's this idea that without those emotions, I mean, you're never going to experience the positive as positive. So even just thinking back at our podcast and some of the mis plenty of mistakes that we've made here, I mean, right, I, I kind of wonder, right, so would it have been possible for us to have appreciated sort of the good parts, right? Like, let's say, so we had issues with like sound quality, we've had issues with our program crashing, we've had issues with like, um, sort of with the program crashing with guests, unfortunately. And I wonder, like, do you think that we would have appreciated like sort of what happened afterwards had we not gone through those bad experiences? Oh, no, totally. Yeah. If, if we hadn't experienced the bad, we wouldn't understand what is good, yeah. right? If we didn't go through pain, we wouldn't know what uh, pleasure was like. We wouldn't have also valued how much we, we grew, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that, that's a very important theme, actually, because the mistakes that we made were all part of the, the growing pains of becoming better at the skill of podcast. Mm -hmm. I think there's still more to do there's more to improve there's more mistakes that we're going to make yeah. that we don't made. say that no <laughs> please no <laughs> no more no more <laughs> no no but i think it's necessary yeah i think it's necessary and then anytime we are successful and things go good or go well rather that makes us value the the experience more if everything just went smoothly the entire time if we could just predict how everything is going to turn out that would take the the fun out of it mm -hmm. but although that is sort of a thought experiment i don't really experientially know that mm -hmm. but i mean i try to uh, compare the times that things have been going completely smoothly as opposed to the times where it, it gets rough at times and then i'm able to accomplish what i seek to accomplish it just feels it feels much better right. intrinsically mm -hmm. so yeah, there's, there's a value to things not going right yeah. or to not always feeling good. Right. And Andreas, do you feel like some of the people, um, if not all of them, the ones who really struggle with kind of boredom and frustration, is it? do you find that it's mostly because they take a short-term view where they think of it as though, well, yes, if I'm in this particular moment and I'm going through these difficult emotions, like I really hate it. And maybe when they look back on it, right, they think about how like painful and awful it is. 
perhaps maybe because they're not able to, or maybe unwilling to take a kind of long-term view and say, okay, well, because I can contrast the former with the latter, I'm now able to see the difference and say, well, I actually only appreciate the latter because of the former. So I'm wondering if the people who struggle the most, let's say with boredom and frustration, struggle with really short-term thinking more than anything. Yeah, um, there's certainly... Um, that's certainly right. I don't know if it applies across the board and that I think we might, and I don't know what to say to that, um, especially when we're dealing with people who might, we might call boredom prone, um, that they're constantly or frequently bored. There might be something personality there wise or something. We don't know what might be the cause of that. But I think, and, and let me just try to put it in a different context. I think we know from research within academic psychology or achievement emotions that um, it's it, people are bored in classes. That's just that's what it is, and it often it occurs naturally in some ways. Um, but then there are ways of dealing with boredom, um, and it, one way is to try to reappraise your situation, is to try to see the situation. Um, under a new light and perhaps see that being significant. So even though you're struggling either with frustration or boredom with the subject, if you're able to say, well, this is going to pay off in a semester or in the future or in a year, whatever, you're able to resist that urge to, to now to find something else to give up on frustration. Because I think frustration, even though it can motivate us, it also has a breaking point. If something frustrates you for too long or too much, you're just going to say, well, my, my energy is at best invested somewhere else. Um, and so um, that kind of, I think the example of being in class and being bored or within an academic context touches upon that point. Now, how do you, how do you encourage that cognitive reappraisal or uh, that idea that there's value there? Well, I think probably you need somebody else, like an instructor or a teacher to say, hey, I know this is hard, stick with it though, because it pays. Um, but you also need, you know, I mean, I think socioeconomical status is going to play a role. Have you had similar experiences like that? Do you have parents, for instance, or siblings that struggle and then made it? Um, do you have role models or messaging that tells you keep, keep up with this and it will pay? So there's all that. And definitely um, there's a lot that we can kind of resist this urge. It's a really strong urge when you're bored to decouple, so to speak, with the situation, right? Just to say, oh, I'm not paying any more attention to this um, and I'm just gonna do something else. And that you might lose something very important. Um, um, in that case, you know, paying attention to class or doing well in, in, in the course. The other thing that we kind of know with more recent literature is that boredom is related to self-regulation, the ability to regulate our behavior. So people who, who are better regulating their behavior on their own uh, individuals who can start projects and move from project to project, um, it seems that they're much better dealing with boredom. And it's less likely that those individuals will be um, chronically bored. So there's something there we can perhaps cultivate. This is pretty new and recent research. But one idea is that if we want to get people out of that chronic boredom, maybe we need to allow them, help them, teach them to um, regulate their behavior better. Yeah. And did you want to say? Yeah. Uh, so in your book, you talk about um, how constantly seeking pleasure, right? Um, th there's an error to that, right? We, we can't experience the uh, dualistic nature of life. We can't, again, we can't know uh, pleasure without pain, uh, uh, happiness without uh, boredom, such and such. Now, I, 
could you speak on um, the concept you brought about in your book, uh, uh, emo diversity, and um, Dr. Anthony Ong's um, research on it and other researchers and what they found? Yeah, this is really, really recent. So there should be a caveat here that as usual with this kind of research, we probably need to uh, wait for the the, the field to mature, but it is so exciting that I had to put it in the book and it, and it makes a case for the, some of the arguments. So the idea of emodiversity is basically a measure and there are different ways that you can measure emodiversity, but basically it's an idea, it's a measure of how diverse your emotions are. So basic example, if I experience only two emotions, joy and let's say happiness or joy and sadness, versus someone who enjoys uh, experiences four emo emotions, four negative emotions and unpleasant, uh, two negative emotions and two positive emotions, the latter person has more emodiversity than the former person. And so their researchers are now interested in understanding whether higher emodiversity correlates with better health prospects. And it turns out that initial research shows that. Um, and what is was surprising um, and this is, uh, I speak about, uh, briefly about this in the book, is that even negative emodiversity um, bears a relationship to um, you living a better life, at least with using some um, um, health measures of how to define a better life. So if you experience four negative emotions versus 10 individuals that experience 10 negative emotions, regardless of how many positive emotions they experience, might be um, doing better in their lives. And there's some theoretical reasons about that, thinking about, well, you see the world differently if you experience more emotions, there's more fine-grained, and maybe you're, well, probably you're much better at adapting and responding to those emotions. So if you're angry at every response, probably your response will be a response to anger. Sometimes that's gonna be appropriate, but a lot of times isn't because we shouldn't be angry all the time, typically. But if you're able to respond to 10, 10 different emotions, it means that you have, a, you have a toolkit of emotional responses. And that just seems to be, that leads us on a better path to deal with complex environmental and social situations. Yeah, and a lot of times with emotional suppression, I mean, it's also connected to shame. So if you have a person who's on, who's like either sort of numb or constantly angry, or um, let's say, I don't know, let's say maybe there's some other kind of like one or two other emotions that they allow them to, so let's say themselves to feel. And let's say, you know, kind of, let's say the dictation of reality, right? Is that we pretty much have to experience this plethora of emotion. And let's say one person says, well, you know, to themselves, like it's only okay to experience anger and maybe sadness, if even that. So I can imagine that all of those situations or all of those other situations that induce those other types of emotions are obviously kind of connected to shame. And if the person feels ashamed most of the time of having those emotions, then I mean, one could think that, okay, obviously emotional diversity, if it's sort of like, um, because it's not linked to shame and it's sort of linked to, I guess, self-acceptance, that would be kind of the understanding. Then if it's linked to self-acceptance and the idea is like, yeah, of course you're going to be healthier, mm -hmm. right? So you're sort of accepting of the plethora of who you are as a human being and you're not sort of beating yourself up for like crying or feeling anxious or feeling scared or even feeling, uh, let's say sad or like even just melancholy. So the idea with emo of emotional diversity seems really interesting because I think it could really be applied very well to the sort of therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it has a great developmental value. I think with kids or children growing up, um, just from personal experience, I think children, it's hard for them to dis um, distinguish between different emotions and even bodily sensations. So I think there's, you can, you know, stomach ache might be, or anxiety might be 
taken to mean that my stomach aches, but that might not be the case. You're experiencing an emotion because of what happened previously, but you're not able to register it. And if you're not able to understand it in that way, then how are you going to respond to that um, environmental stimulus? Yeah. Yeah. And even it's like when we're thinking about the negativity of emotions in general, right? Like, you know how we love to kind of um, to sort of dissect and categorize and we're saying, we love to say like these emotions are negative and these emotions are positive. So I wish that kind of as human beings, unfortunately, all we have are like thought experiments. I wish that people could kind of enter situations like, let's say, without the thing that they think is so terrible. So like, um, Andreas, have you ever seen the old episodes of the Twilight Zone from like the 60s? Um, some of them. I, I, Did you I, I just, yeah. Did you ever see the episode um, with the bank robber who ends up um, getting shot and killed and then he goes to heaven and he gets anything that he wants? No. Oh, so that, okay. did you ever see it? Did we talk about it? Oh, so, there, so this is what happens in the episode. So essentially, so this guy's a bank robber. He's kind of a bad guy. Um, essentially, I think one of the cops or something like catches up to him and shoots him and kills him. And then so he wakes up and this sort of angel takes him aboard and he says, look, you know, you're dead now. I'm going to take you to heaven, right? But, and I'm going to, and the thing is, I'm going to actually be able to give you whatever you want. And so this guy's first resistant. He's like, oh, what's the catch? Like, what do you expect from me? And he's like, no, nothing really. I, you could get whatever you want. And so he's, he's going through this place place, right? He's looking around and he says, wow, like this is paradise. And he's like, yeah, it's all yours. He's like, whatever you want. And then he's like, okay. And then he's like, give me a million dollars. And the guy's like, all right. So he takes out this drawer and he gives him a million dollars. He's like, here you go. And he's like, what else do you want? He's like, no, like literally what's the catch? And he said, no, really, there's no catch. You can have whatever you want. Like just pick. And he said, okay, um, I want beautiful women. He's like, okay. And then like knock on the door and it's a bunch of beautiful women. So as he's going through this process and the trajectory of like this new life, what happens is you kind of go downstairs, he goes downstairs and there's this casino. Um, so he's like a champion all the time at the baccarat tables and at roulette. And then he ends up like entering or um, he ends up like figuring out like the code to some safe, I think, or something. I might be mistaken about this part, but then like he gets it and then there's more money, right? So as he's going through this life, he thinks like, wow, huh, I could get anything I want. Wow. I can get anything I want. And then like all of the girls like love him, right? They're like, oh my God, you're like this amazing person. And then he says, okay, you know what? I want you guys to all get the hell out of here. And they're like, why? What's wrong? He's like, just get it, go, go, just leave me alone. Right. And then, so essentially he's by himself and then the angel comes back and the angel's like, oh, so like, what's up? Like, do you need anything else? Or like, can I go? He's like, He's like, no, he's like, I don't need anything else. I don't want anything else. And he says, how? Oh, like, why? What's the problem? And he says, there's no risk involved. There's no excitement. There's yeah. there's nothing. He's like, I could just I win all the time. I get all of these women. He's like, this is like so boring. And he's like, I can't believe it. Like, this is heaven. Like, what, what? he's like, this actually feels like the other place. And then the angel starts laughing and he's like, ha, 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 ha. this is the other place. Wow. <laughs> yeah. wow. Yeah. So essentially wow. hell is pretty much getting whatever you want. So going back to that reframe, the idea is essentially from this episode that negativity is only negativity in our minds. That if we actually sort of were placed on the other side where there was no negativity, that in itself will become negativity. Wow. Yeah, that, that's great. I wish I knew about that. It will, but I, I, I'm going to go watch it now um, <laughs> because it sounds really interesting and relevant to this, but also wild portrayal of that idea. So it's, yeah, thanks for that. You're welcome. Did yeah, you... it's like hedonic adaptation, right? Yes. Yeah, literally he ended up where he, well, not where he started, but 
pretty much it didn't serve him to only seek pleasure yeah right yeah crazy. yeah and i think from my kind of vague vagueish memory of it i think he kind of realized that um so th there was a poignant quote that he had okay i'm gonna butcher this so i'm gonna like pretty much my memory is gonna reconstruct this so please take don't take this at face value so i think he said something along the lines of like it feels fake because it's not really me so he said something like when it's sort of predestined there's not really much of me in this right something like um there's um since there's no risk that means that like all of this doesn't happen because either let's say you know um you know i became a skilled player right or because like these women really love me or something like that the idea is it's all predetermined so it's like it actually doesn't matter who they put in this position it could have been me it could have been someone else these women don't like me per se right i mean this is all kind of made for me it's like mm -hmm. this this kind of matrix like world that's put together i mean yes it's for me but i haven't done anything to earn it right and i think going back to the notion of frustration why frustration is so such a great emotion and such a cool like um even notion in one's mind is that if there's frustration that means there's effort and if there's effort and i finally get the thing i want i only received it because of the effort and because i place so much of myself in it whereas for him he realized well if there's no effort there's really no me in it so feeling good about you know these girls feeling good about these victories feeling good about all of this money i actually can't there's really not much self-esteem tied into that because i technically didn't earn any of it mm. Yeah. 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 And so um, going back to the book, what's what's fascinating is uh, pretty much when while I was reading, I I also got the sense of like what even the story is portraying. Right. That uh, constantly seeking pleasure. There's there's no win to it. I mean, even if in the future uh, we create devices, I mean, we already have a virtual reality uh, device. We have a uh, Andres, I don't know if you heard of this. Have you heard of Oculus uh, Quest or, or whatever it's called? It's some kind of wireless. Is it, is it a gear or is it like a headgear or not? Yeah, it's some yeah. kind of like a headgear. It's now wireless, some kind of okay. new thing that came out. One of my friends got it and he's addicted to this thing. And I, and I, <laughs> oh, and I just I just kind of see where it's going. I mean, once the graphics get better, once you're able to have more manipulative control of this particular virtual world, I mean, I could imagine people trying to invent uh, realms of just constant hedonic pleasure, right? But uh, I'm interested to see what the result of that will be. Because mm -hmm. I wonder, will it become like, like in that Twilight Zone episode, like, uh, kind of like a version of hell for people because it's like once you can predict everything that's going to happen once you have uh, full control and you could constantly experience that um, happiness or pleasure you won't ever get the other side of it thus appreciating it so right and then how do you ever feel good about yourself so like, let's say, okay, so let's sort of separate the facts. So this is not like a video game, right? Where like you play and you get a reward for like your effort is, or is it? It, that, that's one aspect of it. Oh, okay. Um, but I, what I'm what I'm saying is uh, just being a seer, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you might see that in in the future we create worlds that are indistinguishable from our own. Yeah. But then imagine having manipulative control of that. Yeah. And so what are the philosophical consequences of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the only like, I guess, problem that I could see with something like that. So like, let's say with people that I've spoken to and just have known who are like addicted to video games. The thing about that is that even though they feel good and again, short term and long term, even though they feel good in the short term, let's say if it's something like this that gives you, you know, whatever, some reward, I don't know, coins or like some level up or whatever. So if it's one of those things, then what happens is in the short term, those people feel really good because like, hey, I did this thing and this was the achievement or the reward. Mm -hmm. The problem is in 
the sh- in the long term, a lot of them are really depressed because in the real world, they have actually nothing to show for their lives. So all they have is sort of these virtual kind of gifts, right? It's like, you know, I achieved this thing in the virtual realm, but then when I go kind of outside and I go into my life and sort of see what's around, there's really nothing there. It's kind of empty. And so my thinking is with something like that, even if that does become, um, even if that does become, let's say a staple of like, you know, postmodern life or whatever, um, my thinking is it's going to lead to a lot of depression or at least contribute to it. Mm. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I could definitely see that. I mean, we won't know until it happens. Again, like uh, a lot of this, these are thought experiments, right? Mm-hmm. But there, there is a there is a sense to what to what it is that you're what you're saying. I'm curious to see what it's actually going to be like. Hopefully, it won't turn out. Yeah, you know, we won't get that negative side of it but i mean it might be inevitable we'll, we'll see interesting so and then I, okay i have a question for andreas so andreas do you think that it's possible that maybe that kind of virtual reality can sort of be a stepping stone to accepting boredom and frustration so like let's say if a person goes through this virtual reality right they kind of let's say it's a video game of some sort and let's say you know they build up their confidence in tolerating these you know kind of emotions right and tolerating boredom and tolerating frustration and then they could see oh there's actually like something at the end of that right so mm-hmm. let's say if i'm playing a game where um Let's say, you know, I'm kind of, I'm perusing through the environment and there's a lot of boredom, right? Like, let's say maybe I have to find challenges or something. I don't know. So let's say you're looking for challenges, right? And then you say, oh, wow, you know, that boredom actually had a purpose, right? Even though I was really bored, I was actually sort of looking to see like where I could kind of uh, maneuver myself or where I can find particular challenges that would obviously sort of give me the possibility of like, you know, growing my character or something. Um, And then even with frustration, the idea is like, well, before I used to run away from frustration, um, before I felt like, you know, I couldn't tolerate. I felt maybe, eh, you know, these activities weren't for me. I feel kind of helpless. But then like with these video games, it's like, oh, I actually have some skill, right? So I'm able to tolerate the frustration on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I'm able to take on this challenge and sort of, you know, succeed in some significant way, at least in the game. And then maybe in addition to that, right now, I can even tolerate boredom because I could see boredom as actually a means to an end where like, let's say, again, this magical world, if I weren't sort of, you know, kind of, um, if I were navigating this island or something, um, let's say if I weren't bored for like the past 15 minutes looking for a challenge i actually wouldn't have found any mm-hmm. yeah i'm not much of a gamer but um you can i mean we can make up two different scenarios often games have like a driven narrative that you have the character and you you go directly towards a path so it's exactly what you were saying so one scenario will be you just play as the main character and you're giving incentives directives where to go another scenario kind of the optional way of playing, you get no directions. And if you're stuck somewhere in an island, some kind of scenery, and you don't know what to do, you will start exploring. Um, and then maybe that moment of boredom will spur this idea, okay, I need to find a way out of this. I need to overcome this. And then suddenly you find a different way of playing the game, one that you, you wouldn't have thought or you wouldn't have been driven to had you been directed from the beginning. It's gonna, I mean, we do know that um, there was this kind of, I don't strange experiment, but um, they were trying to, this happened in, um, I talk about it a little bit in the book, they were trying to recreate Alice in Wonderland as an experiment. Yes. So they, they brought in subjects into, uh, into a lab and they try, I mean, the lab, if you see pictures, it doesn't look like whatever Alice in Wonderland might look when the rabbit comes and um, pulls out a, um, a, a watch and says, well, I have to hurry and go over there. Uh, but the idea was that, well, we'll get subjects, we'll bore them. And they did pretty, they did that pretty well because they had them fold pieces of paper 
um, for no reason whatsoever. So they were for 10 minutes folding pieces of paper. And that turns out to be a really good way of uh, getting people to be bored. But then they see this mechanical rabbit jumping up or rolling around. And what, what the experimenters found is that people were motivated to chase, to explore. Once this type of war or once they became bored, this was the spark that they were looking or the moment that they were looking to start doing something else. Um, so there's got, it, it, it's certainly a lot to that. I think boredom can be used very proactively. Um, it, it's just gonna have, we just have to um, help ourselves, I think, often to just take a moment and say, okay, because our, let's wait a little bit or let me persist because I think our natural or um, reaction is gonna be, I wanna do something else. So if the game is really boring, you might say, okay, well, I'm putting it down. I'm gonna try a different game. But there has to be something there. Either we bring it or the game brings it. That there has to be a promise of meaning or a promise of challenge or significance, something there that's not in our face. It, it doesn't attract us, it doesn't engage us, so we're not bored. But there's enough there that allows us to think, okay, I'm going through a phase here. It's boring, but there's gonna be something. Yeah. And I like that. I like that sort of focus on meaning. So something that uh, Alan and I frequently talk about. So when um, so I'm actually like more of the impulsive person and Alan is the more sort of thoughtful one. I mean, it's just kind of how it is. So when we talk about our podcast, I'm often the person who's like, oh, why are we getting the views? You know, we're not getting the particular like, let's say results that I want. Right. Like, let's say, you know, view counts, um, particular follow like number of followers, you know, following whatever. So for Alan, right, because he finds this podcast to be so meaningful to him. And it's not that I don't. But for me, I really value reward. So for Alan, because he finds the podcast so meaningful for him, what he's able to say is that like, look, regardless of whether or not the outcome happens, you know, I'm okay with wherever the podcast is going, just because what we do is so meaningful to me, right? I learn from it. Um, we provide a lot of value to whatever amount of audience or, you know, whoever does listen to it. And so for you, what's so cool is that you're able to kind of frame it in that way. Whereas for me, on the other hand, I'm like, come on, like, you know, kind of let's get the show rolling. Like, what are we doing? So um, could you tell us about that? Like, so how do you, how do you do it? How do you sort of get yourself into that mind state of, you know what, this is what's important. And the rest of it is sort of just an addition. It's very stoic. Well, one thing that's fascinating is uh, I think that's probably Andres why me and Leon make a good team or Leon and I rather. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, so the, the, the thing is that um, actually I value the fact that you get frustrated and that you want results and all of that. I think that's very good. I feel like that should be a driving force to see like, okay, wait, wait, so if we're, if the way we're doing it like this doesn't work, okay, what if we try like this? Or if this was a puzzle, like, does it fit this way? Or, you know, should we try this way? All of that. Um, from my personal experience, I think uh, frustration is, is inevitable. I don't think success is something that happens right away. I, I think that um, there are sort of growing pangs to becoming skillful at something and that any, any obstacle that comes is just something that you have to sort of, uh, embrace. And in order to keep doing, to not be discouraged and to keep doing what it is that you seek to do, you have to, uh, move forward in spite of obstacles. Um, so in that sense, anytime I encounter an obstacle, I'll, uh, sit with it and be with it and then just say, okay, uh, what can I learn from this obstacle? If, for example, I didn't uh, perform uh, at my best this particular time or that particular time, okay, no problem. That's fine. I can 
try again as long as and and what keeps pulling me towards that is just like uh, I value uh, doing the podcast. I value, uh, for example, uh, ha- having you on, Andreas, and uh, getting people to, for example, reframe their relationship to uh, to pain, to to boredom, to frustration, to negativity, right? Because if people could understand that, right, that's so that's extremely valuable in their lives. Instead of trying to seek to quell your uh, constant. Um, not constant boredom, but rather any sort of negative emotion going to the next stimuli constantly instead of seeing what is this emotion telling me? What's what can I gather from this? What what is it telling me uh, that I need to do? Am I frustrated with my current life situation? Should I instead of trying to watch Netflix right now just to get a like a like a little uh, bit of dopamine or going on my phone to get that piece of dopamine? Uh, what if I sit with my boredom? What if I try to see what's going on here? What if now I try to undertake the steps that I would have to take in order to uh, change this particular thing that's causing this boredom or this negativity, right? And um, the value of that lets me deal with any obstacles, right? right? Uh, It's okay to mess up. There's a sense of pride in it and sort of attempting to an overcoming it. Uh, I mean, it feels good to overcome it. Mm-hmm. It feels good to overcome it, but it's not even that. It's just the fact that if this is helping people, uh, please, that's that's the main that's the main thing. And then everything else feels like it'll sort of handle itself. But then, why I say Leon is uh, like a really good uh, counter, uh, like a good partner, is because you being frustrated with, uh, and not even that. It's not, by the way, we're kind of over exaggerating like the level of frustration. It's not like. Uh, like banging the table, <laughs> frustrated. Yeah, I'm not going on rampage. Right? But but yeah. <laughs> uh, I need followers. <laughs> Give me. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not like that, but uh, but yeah, uh, that frustration sort of pulls us to try different things or to think in different ways. Whereas, let's say my attitude might be a little lackadaisical. Yes, sure. I have this overarching purpose and any obstacle that comes in the way okay I, I can deal with it that's a good that's a valuable asset but then another thing is what are some things we could do to to improve right and um whereas i'm thinking okay just keep doing the work that's important you might be thinking wait wait, wait, wait. You, we have to try this we have to try this we have to try that and that for me is uh something that i value out of out of that so i mean i i think that's that's a that's good that's a good sort of not counterbalance but just like what makes it a cohesive sort of a like a good team yeah yeah Yeah, and um so and there was also this really great part i think this is probably my favorite part of the book so i think his name was alex alex the bird yeah yeah, it was Alex, right? So, the, well, okay, so Andres, can you tell us about Alex the Bird and sort of in frustration and boredom in his case? Yeah, so this is, he's no longer alive. So this is Alex the Parrot. He lived to be around 30 years old. He worked in a lab at the University of Chicago um, with Dr. Pepperberg, I think. Um, I might be getting her name wrong now, but I'll, I'll find it and correct it. Um, um, or just people can make a note. Uh, but it's a very famous case in animal cognition and bird cognition. And so what she discovered by working with Alex for so many years was that he was um, responding emotionally to a whole range of situations. And there are a couple of um, cases in which Alex performs performs a task, a task 
in a way that it was not expected at all. And the idea here is that because he was driven by his emotional reactions. So um, there's this story um, that is, um, uh, um, that I tell that um, he was given a task that was too easy and then he stopped performing the task. And it was a way of showing that I want to do something else, something more complicated, in fact. And some of the responses saying like um, showcasing skills that you wouldn't expect someone or a bird or even, you know, even people who worked with Alex, you wouldn't be expecting um, him to be able to showcase those skills. A different example, perhaps easier to describe in, um, uh, verbally. Um, so um, Alex was performing for, um, I think, a number of CEOs or some high up uh, individuals um, showcasing his skills. And um, he was um, showcasing letters and um, talking, making some verbal responses to questions. Um, usually um, in his training, he would be rewarded after a correct response. So, well, or even an incorrect response, but usually when there's a correct response, Alex was expecting a reward. And mm -hmm. given this presentation, during this presentation, there was no time for pausing, giving a reward and going to the next task. And so Alex turned, um, more and more frustrated with this lack of expected response. And at some point he spelled out not N-U-T um, to indicate that I want a reward, I want a not. But what was surprising and what astonished everybody was the fact that this he was not taught to perform that task. So he never um, sounded out N-U-T um, in response to um, requesting a not. And so that was one of the ideas that, whoa, um, frustration might not only motivate us to do something, but maybe perhaps it can motivate us to do something that otherwise we wouldn't be able to do. Um, and that was kind of the, yeah, the story or one of the stories that involves Alex. Yeah, and that kind of brings me back to something that you and I have talked about before, where you said something along the lines of like, if a task is too easy, right? It's sort of like, it's kind of meaningless, right? And if you oh, kind of stay, maybe what is it? What do you, you want to bring about? Flow yeah, sure, to go ahead, do it. Oh, no, I just thought you were referring to flow state. <laughs> no, no, but, yeah. So the, basically the, the bird uh, was uh, frustrated from doing this simple task <laughs> over and over again, right? <laughs> and then the moment it encountered something that actually kind of met the challenge level that, you know, satisfied it, then was more motivated to perform. Is is that where you were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so the idea was, I think, for the bird that, well, I mean, not even I think it was obvious. So it's uh, though sort of the task was too easy initially, or it may have not been too easy. Yeah, I guess it was too easy. So it was too easy. I don't know if it was ever too difficult. So it was too easy. And then for him, the idea was like, okay, like, why are you guys doing this? So um, something that we haven't mentioned here was uh, kind of going back to Alex, the part of the story that was the funniest to me was where essentially the bird was like, um, uh, I don't remember exactly what he did, but something along the lines of so it was a verbal task and i think the bird essentially got so frustrated that they ended up like having to bring him back to like his room because he didn't want to complete it anymore he was so angry that the task was too easy and then i think he what did he do he did something where he had to um oh man wow okay my memory is lost on this. So he did something where I think he ended up like switching the task, right? The, he ended up switching. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I, let me see. If, I'm going to try to get it as accurate as possible because yeah. my memory might be falling, failing me. But one of the tasks was they had a tray of objects that they will show to Alex. Um, and this just shows how great training with Alex and working with 
uh, with Alex has been. And so I think I got her name wrong. It's Irene Pepperberg that she was working with Alex for all these years. So that's just an indication of the tremendous amount of work that had gone into training and working with Alex. But they will show a tray of objects and some of them will be like blue objects or some of them will be the same category of objects. So one question might be how many blue um, and then Alex will take a look at the tray and say three or um, something like, so that will be a kind of um, a way of measuring. And it was basically a way of figuring out whether Alex has any conception of numbers, identifying numbers, telling you how many keys there are, for instance, how many green things there are there. And then there was a, they've done this for a while. I, I, they must have done it for a long, long time. And um, Leon was describing there was a period of non-compliance. Alex, we don't know, we, we think he got bored with this task. It was just too easy. So he wasn't responding, looking at the ceiling, asking for rewards and all that. And then they were like, okay, they came back to him after a while and said, okay, how many this? And then his response was zero. Um, and they were surprised because they didn't teach him to indicate the absence of items. Um, or better, I think he even instigated the question. So yes, he, yeah. he, he prompted them to ask them a question about an item that wasn't there. And then he answered zero, showing that he somehow had a grasp of the absence of the items or the lack of quantity there that there isn't anything there. And this was just mind blowing for people who have been working with Alex for all these years because it wasn't something that they taught him to do. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, this is part of the, um, part of a broader uh, understanding or way of thinking about how our emotional responses might prompt us to do things that otherwise we would have thought they're outside the boundaries of training and possibilities, especially when we were working with something like an avian mind or the mind of Alex the parrot. And, you know, I wonder if there's like, a, I mean, of course, this is just pure conjecture at this point. So or speculation. I wonder if there wasn't a part of him that was upset with him, not so much because he was bored, but because maybe he felt like those people didn't care enough about sort of his growth or because, right? Right. So because it's like, I think we get that a lot in our environments. Like you see this with kids when they're in school and they don't feel challenged and they kind of disassociate. Um, I think you get this a lot. I mean, another sort of assumption. I think you probably get this a lot with like video gameplay. I think a lot of times, and again, pure speculation, but I think it's possible that a lot of times kids turn to video games or become obsessed with them because there's no one in their environment challenging them and helping them grow. So they think like, oh, here's like this wonderful virtual reality and, you know, I can become successful in it. So I wonder if there was sort of um, if there was more nurturing or more kind of, um, I mean, not teaching. That's, that's too um, too broad. But let's say more nurturing or more sort of like care or consideration for the person's development. I wonder if boredom would actually be or could be something that people kind of embrace rather than reject. Or yeah. maybe not boredom, maybe frustration. Yeah, no, and, and in this case, you know, I'm using it as an example. We, we don't know exactly what Alex was feeling, obviously, or what the emotion, but there is something, I mean, what, what struck me when I was reading the literature and the work by Dr. Pepperberg was the fact that she was really attuned to the emotional reactions of, um, of Alex and all the other animals that she was working with. And it, this was kind of an, 
like what uh, Alan was saying, this reframing of the situation or understanding. So there's, here's someone who works with animals, but they're focusing not just on, you know, can you perform this task? Can you solve this puzzle? But also, right, what takes you there? What allows you to solve this puzzle, right? Is it frustration? Is it kind of like disappointment in, disappointment in some way? Is it boredom? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter exactly what the state is, but the fact that there is something there um, seems crucial and just very important. And um, I think didactic for us, um, uh, for other people, for people. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I was wondering, um, it's a little, you know, it's always a cliche question, but I think it's important because I want to hear how you feel in your own words. What do you, what would you like people to sort of come away with um, from reading your book? Like, what do you hope that it instills in them? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. Um, I mean, I don't know which one will be the most important. I don't know which one I will label number one. But I, I think it's important to think about how we move from situation to situation. I think a lot of the time we just don't think about it. We just react to situations as they come along. Sometimes that might give us good results, but sometimes not. So I think more being more mindful about how we regulate our behavior and not just in the moment, and I think this is what anticipation does well and help, but thinking ahead and structuring our world. So if this happens, I will have these resources or I'll be able to react in this way. So my, you know, my primary goal in telling these stories and um, describing findings from psychology, for instance, and saying some philosophical remarks just to say, show, look, there are ways out you can, you can, it can help yourself um, regulate behavior. You can help yourself become a better self-regulator in a way. And so that will be my, if, if I can, could boil it down, it will be, you can help yourself to keep moving because I think it's really important not to get stuck in difficult situations. It's tempting, um, but I think we're going to find value if we, with persistence or movement, and sometimes it's just going to be sheer will and resilience in some way, but other times we just might need to be more strategic about how to move ourselves out of those situations. So I think there are lessons to be learned from taking time, taking our time with boredom, taking our time with frustration, and really um, thinking hard about what we anticipate, what we want to be doing next um, to help us become slightly better versions of ourselves in some way, just something better, right? It doesn't, I don't know what the end goal might be. Everybody will have different goals, but just being able to keep motivating yourself, taking a step-by-step, -step, but also looking forward, that will be my ideal kind of um, objective here, if possible for readers to get. Absolutely. And then, so, I mean, Andres, if we were to follow you or to find your work, where can we do that? Um, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I guess just uh, easiest way just to follow my work in general will be I have a personal website, which is my last name, um, .net. Um, so lpdoru.net. And I, if anything gets published, if I write something, I, it will make it there. And sometimes I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> What's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's A from, for Andreas and then my last name, A-L-P-D-O-R-U. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. This is such an enlightening, enlightening and insightful show. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you and thanks for engaging with the ideas and for the wonderful questions and conversation. Absolutely. So we'll be in touch with you soon. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Bye.
All right. That was awesome. Yeah, that was super fun. All right, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. (laughs) (laughs) On YouTube. And then obviously you can find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com under the STM podcast section up top. All right. And guys, thanks so much for watching. See you next time. All right.